Open your Bibles to Isaiah 57. That'll be our text today. Isaiah 57. Have you uh, ever had anyone mock you as a Christian? Uh, that, 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 that takes place in one of two ways. Sometimes it's good-natured fun. Your friends know you're a Christian, and they mock you for being a Christian, and, and they tease you. Um, uh, maybe they mock you for not drinking. Uh, Graham, why are you drinking milkshakes? You know, and, and uh, perhaps they uh, even mock you for purity. Oh, by the way, junior church may be dismissed, ages three years old of the second grade. So if you haven't gone already, you may do so. Uh, but uh, maybe they even mock you for purity. Uh, I had one manager say uh, that, that was like, oh, uh, you, you know, you've never tried drugs? Wait a minute. I bet you're a virgin. And he just thought that was so funny. As if premarital sex ever really benefited anyone over the long term, right? And did not create harm and ruin. So it, it's good. Sometimes it's good-natured fun. People who like you mock you. There is some truth behind it, though. Good humor always has truth. And the truth is they really do believe that you have taken mythology and lived your life for a fairy tale. And, and, but they, they like you, but they, they just mock it because they really think you've, you're just wasting your life. But then you've got those, and oftentimes they're closer to you. They know your history, and now you claim Jesus, and they mock you in a very bitter way. Who are you to claim Jesus? They know everything you've done, maybe even to them, right? And, and so there is, there is just this mockery. The Bible is going to address such a crowd today, people who are mockers, and we need to understand that the world hated Jesus. The world will hate you. The, the mockery is going to be there. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and some of it's more palatable and good-natured and tolerable than others, but the mockery is going to be there, and the Bible is going to address that crowd this week. Um, now, last week we left the section of Isaiah that was dealing with, uh, and I'm beginning to realize as we're in this section, that we have left the topic of returning from exile into, uh, from Babylon exile into the Holy Land. And, and now we are, uh, we are um, seeing God uh, in a handful of chapters address for Israel righteous living, and then we'll see a handful of chapters that will deal about the ultimate end times and the ultimate coming of our Lord. So, again, now today you're going to see the wicked. The focus is in Jerusalem. It'll, you'll see a reference to um, the Holy Mountain. Uh, so it, the focus is going to be on Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. But you're going to see the wicked addressed in their attitudes over the righteous and their need to look at themselves and consider the end of their ways because the end of their ways is not going to be a way of peace. Um, we are in chapter 57 of Isaiah. We'll read the entire chapter here. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of sorceresses, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? That means make long your tongue. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out drink offering. You have, offered, you have uh, brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. 
For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. Your journey, your, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied? And did not remember me? And did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time? And you do not fear me. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell on high and uh, in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirits, spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word and we try to understand today the difference between your people and the wicked. Uh, Father, we even see that your people are sinful. They need to be contrite. They need to repent. And yet, Father, we see that you will heal that you will lead, that you will help, and that you will grant peace. God, help us to understand the wicked. Help us not to walk in their ways. Help us to walk after you. And God, might we not miss you and, and the relationship we have with you in this cleansing, in this salvation. Help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we begin to break down this chapter, the first thing we see is that the world misunderstands the death of the righteous. The righteous truly truly enter a state of perfect peace. Uh, Look at verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest on their beds. Could you turn me up just a little bit there, Gordy? Um, uh, He enters into peace. They rest on their beds who walk in their uprightness. So verse 1 to me takes a little bit of a surprise turn. Uh, it, it starts out with what it seemed to be a complaint, that the righteous die and nobody understands. 
And it almost would be like, oh, we should pity the righteous. Nobody cares when they die. That's not where that is going. It's going in the opposite direction. That No one takes it to heart because the righteous man has been removed from calamity. He enters into a state of peace, a state of fulfillment in God's presence. And people don't understand this. Now, it's interesting how the world will borrow this theology for their funerals. If you go to a funeral and you see somebody laying in a casket, especially if you saw them in the hospital struggling with pain and, and disease, and now you see them in that casket, they look so peaceful. Okay? But that may or may not be the case. Everybody says, oh, they look so peaceful. But where they are at and what is going on may or may not be peace. And it's really interesting how the world borrows our language. Uh, some of them honestly believe, I think, at the funeral, they say, oh, I, and I'm talking about people who live as if we are just random pieces of protoplasm that, 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 that evolved and, and that there is no God, there is no real purpose. There, that, I'm talking about the atheistic evolutionist. At a funeral, they say, well, you know, she's in a better place. He's at peace now. And, and, and so they, they, they maybe honestly believe that that person is in a better place, but, but you want to ask the atheist evolutionary, uh, based on what, where do you get this? Have you been there? Do you know anyone who has been there and been back? I do, but do you? See, we know our Lord and Savior. He's walked through death's door. He testified that God has this handled. But if you're an evolutionarist, how do you really believe that they're at peace? In other, in other cases, they just say that because they're words of comfort, but they really don't believe it. I, I, how can they? Uh, the, the person is as gone as that goldfish you had at five years old that died. I mean, uh, you know, wherever that is, that's where they are which is nowhere in an evolutionary mindset. Uh, see, the fact is, for the righteous, death can be a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So the point of this text today is that we need to live with the reality that when the righteous dies, he is at peace. He is truly at peace. And peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict. Yes, it says taken away from calamity. But, but the, the Jewish idea of shalom has to do with prosperity and fullness. Uh, listen to uh, Psalm 16, verse 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, a reference to the Messiah. You do not know, uh, you make known to me the path of life and get this, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is for the believer when they die. Uh, in God's presence, fullness of joy. Paul argued back and forth with himself as he wrote Second uh, Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 10. Same theme as we see in Psalm 16, 11. Same theme as we see in verses 1 and 2 that the righteous man enters a state of peace. And, and Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This explains the attitude, the mindset of a Christian 
who truly, uh, death is a judgment. Death is scary to every human being. That, that we are not unreasonable about the, the, the fear of the pain of dying and things that are associated with that. It is a judgment on the sin of mankind from Genesis. Okay, so we don't love death, but, but there is a mystery. There is uh, almost an appeal, you might say, about what is on the other side, the inheritance and the joy that we do believe that is before us, yet we cannot describe exactly. We just know the promises of God that there is great joy in his presence. And that if we could truly know the fullness of that joy, we would rather be there than here. But the natural human instinct is to live, and that's a good instinct. And while we live, mindful of that, we seek to please him. Now, the world cannot help but mock us. The world does not understand these things. And so now we get into the section that deals with the world's mockery. Addressing the wicked descendants of evil, God asks, whom are you mocking given your history of uh, burning in lust and slaughtering your unwanted children as a result of your lust. Look at verse 3. But you draw near, sons of sorceress, uh, the sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? That's not like, you know, raspberry uh, blowing your tongue at them. That's not na 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 sticking out your tongue. That's making your tongue long. That is when you open your mouth wide and you wag that tongue all over the place talking about somebody. And the world does that. They love to mock, uh, mock believers. Are you not children of transgression? The offspring of deceit? You who burn in lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. On this mockery, coming from those who, of all people, if they understood the context of life, should not be mocking. Uh, we had our youth group meet last night, and they were studying from Titus chapter 2. And it's talking about how the older in the church teach the younger so that the unsaved will be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. And, and, and as we studied that last night, you might have been sitting there thinking, now why would somebody be ashamed for having nothing evil to say about you? Wouldn't they just go on living their lives unaffected? Yeah, you would think so. But that's not the way it works. There is an enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of Satan, Genesis 3. There is an enmity between the world and the believer. Jesus Christ said, the world hated me, it will hate you also. And, and so they cannot but help talk in an evil way about believers. And I'm talking about, I'm not, you know, there's so many uh, Christians, there's so many unbelievers, it's not like every unbeliever in the world is talking about you. Not, nothing like that, but I'm talking about the ones who get close to you. Perhaps unsaved people in your family, perhaps unsaved people at work, unsaved people at school. Unsaved people who are really in your sphere, who just, your belief in Jesus Christ grates on them, and they cannot help but open their mouth and wag their tongues. And when they do, and the substance is not there to justify the wagging, when they start ridiculing, and all of a sudden somebody says, well, I know her. She's the nicest, isn't, isn't, what are you talking about? Isn't she the nicest, uh, uh, hardworking, faithful? Isn't he, isn't he a, a man of his word? What are you talking about? And all of a sudden, as they have been running their mouth, mocking, there's no substance there, and they're called on it. 
and they are brought to a point of shame. That's, that is my understanding. Listen to Jesus. He said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The world mocks. And the world mocks even as they reap the rewards of their sin. They will mock you for not drinking. They will mock you for not doing drugs. They will mock you for not engaging in perverse activity. And if you're dating the wrong kind of person, your date may even mock you for your purity. Get out of that relationship. The world will mock the righteous even as they burn in lust and fail to see it, even as they reap all kinds of evil in their lives and fail to connect the dots, even as they slaughter their unwanted children and refuse to call it murder, but call it reproductive health. Look at these verses again. Um, Isaiah calls them sons of the sorceress. Uh, the, the ideal of sorcery is divination. Back then it would be casting lots, it would be necromancy, it would be casting arrows, casting sticks, uh, slaughtering an animal, examining its entrails. Today, uh, I don't know if anybody plays with Ouija boards anymore, but that would be a modern form of divination. Horoscopes, tarot cards. It's amazing how sophisticated people can actually get so far into that, they will cancel trips because their, their, uh, their, their horoscope doesn't agree with the trip intelligent, modern people seeking to get a handle, uh, uh, grease the skids of life through the spirit realm. We see in verse number five, uh, it, 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 when it asks in verse four, who are you mocking? Opening your mouth, sticking out your tongue. Uh, verse five, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. Uh, one of the uh, very popular Spots for fertility worship, fertility goddess worship would have been in oak trees. Anywhere that you'd have poles or oaks, um, uh, perhaps phallic symbols were behind that. And, and, and then you see in ver- at the end of verse number five, you who slaughter your children in the valleys, um, the valley of Hinnom, uh, um, Gehenna, we, we get that, that idea. Just outside of Jerusalem was a place where they would worship Molech, af- offering children as sacrifices. And we know, in, we know through the digs when you see the, the, the dump spots of uh, baby bones that they were mostly female and deformed babies, mostly unwanted in their culture, in their era. And, uh, and, and so it was really a, a worship of convenience. Today we've dispensed with all the deity talk and we just go to an abortion clinic and we do it because um, it's right for us. We are really worshiping ourselves in this era. But, but this is, the, this is, this is the, 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 the fruits of the wicked in the day of Isaiah. In the next five verses, we see some feminine verbs. And so uh, Isaiah is addressing Israel as a foolish, uh, uh, foolish fornicating woman in verses 6 through 10. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion, and they, they are your lot. You have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Now, let me just stop and say these smooth stones, there's a lot of talk about what are they. 
and, and there's not a lot of agreement on it. Everything from something to do with, with, uh, with idols, phallic symbols, stones that were in the valley and, and smoothed out by the rushing waters in the wadis when you'd have the, the, the floods from the rains, um, to graves where they would actually, you see channels where they would have channels that they could drop libations of drink offerings and grain offerings to the deceased. So it would be a form of ancestor worship. Uh, not a lot of clarity as far as what these smooth stones are. But they are idolatrous, and it's going to be the portion of the wicked. This is where where they can go when they run into the day of trouble. Verse 7, on high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. So we're going from the valley, now we're going to the mountain. So it's everywhere, from the groves to the valley to the mountain. These people are perverse. On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And so here, again, I'm just seeing what's behind the doorpost. We don't know historically, uh, culturally, what that's a reference to. But, but there's some kind of evil going on in the home. And the bed has been made wide. It sounds like it's broad, open invitation. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journey to the king. Now, is this, this, is this all of a sudden getting into politics? Or, or what is this? Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Molech is the Hebrew word for the Molech, God, the, the god Molech. With no vowels being given in Hebrew, I'm a little suspicious that maybe this is another reference to Molech. But it could also be a reference to, uh, to, uh, to um, politics when Israel went to the south and, and they went to Egypt, uh, or they went over to Babylon seeking security instead of to God. But let's just read verse number 9 with all those ideas in mind. You journeyed to the king with oil. You multiplied your perfumes. You set your envoys far off, and you sent down even to Sheol. Now, that, the Sheol is the grave. Now, what's interesting in verse number 10 is that... Um, even the unsaved get tired of their ways sometimes. Even they come to the end of themselves. But they can give themselves a little pep talk. Look at verse 10. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. So they, 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 they grow weary, but oh, they just find a way to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and get through it. Now, what is interesting here is if you compare that, that, that self-effort to, oh, I can, you know, I can pull myself together. Now look at verse 21. Look at where this is all going. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You can think, you can think that you have pulled yourself through and you can think you can get through this without the Lord, but you need to understand there is an eternal habitation where there will be anything but peace. It will be a storm. It will be a tempest. So point number four here, the wicked fear. They lie and they will fall with their idols in the end. Look at verse 11. Whom did you dread and feared so that you lied? Now that's a really good question, isn't it? Stop it. Think about the last time you lied. Okay? When you did that, who did you dread? Who did you fear? Why did you do that? that that's, that's a very insightful question. 
Who did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and lay it to heart? In other words, you feared something, but this is what you did not fear. This is who you did not fear. You did not fear God. And he is the one whom you should have feared, but you did not. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Now, this is a bit of irony in verse 12. Verse 12 says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. In other words, it's not going to help. And then, here's the judgment. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. He, he says to wicked Israelites, don't call out to me. Let your idols. Uh, and, and, of course, modern era, you know, we have modern idols. We look to money, self, fame, whatever we want that defines us, houses, cars, children even. I mean, we, we, we are defined by so many things other than God, and we look to that. And God says, when that all falls apart, you who do not trust me, you who live for self, you who live for the pleasures of this world, you go to your idols. Let them deliver you. Let's see how your money does. Let's see how your body does. You who worship your body as an idol. I have read in antiquities that uh, polytheism had grown quite acceptable. That uh, you, 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 this, this chapter is addressed to Israelites, and yet it's dealing with all kinds of polytheistic, false, idolatrous ways. And, and, and what I'm reading here is that if you were in Greek culture, you could equate Greek Zeus with Syrian Baal and Babylonian Marduk. And, and so that as you went from one culture to the other, you just switched names and you just regarded this God that it, it's a polytheistic realm and, and you just switched from honoring one God in Babylon to another God in Greece to another God in, in, in Canaan. Um, likewise with the fertility goddesses. Now note that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die for honoring God exclusively. And we have a pluralism today too. But Jesus Christ says that that does not pass muster. Listen to Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone. Peter is speaking, uh, preaching Jesus in Acts 4. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name. Now, there are those in our culture who would say, well, none of us know the whole truth. I mean, does anybody here hold up your hand? You know everything there is to know about God, about religion. None of us know the whole truth. And so here's what human religions are. Human religions are individual pathetic human attempts to acquire as much knowledge about God as we can. Christians have this body of knowledge and so much, and Islam has this other body, and, and you just compare the word religions. And, and you know, none of us know it all. And, and so it, all of it's just a vain attempt by man to get as far. Do you, do you see the bait and switch that they've done? Because it is true, none of us know it all. But this word is all that God has given to reveal of himself to us. It is right here in completed form. And anything that goes against this is wrong. And among the things that are in this is that there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you can be saved other than Jesus Christ. Now, does the Bible have all knowledge in all the universe for all of eternity? No, it does not. 
Does it say everything that God is? It cannot. God is infinite. The book would never quit being written. You could not even approach it. It would be infinite. Uh, this does not have everything about God in it. It has everything God wants man to know for this era. And then for all of eternity, we will study God. And there will be no hotter topic, no greater topic for all of eternity than the wonders of God himself. And we will never exhaust the subject. It'll be a delightful pursuit of knowledge of the holy for all of eternity. But we do not bait and switch by saying, yes, the, 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 the true statement that, do you know it all? No, you don't. Well, we don't equate that to somebody taking another text, something other than the Word of God, and saying, well, you see, they have their corner on the truth, you have your corner of the truth, and it's all the same. No, it is not. This is the Word of God. And everything we believe must conform to that. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we reject pluralism. We reject equating all faiths as if they were equal. Now, note that the last half of verse number 13 signals a message to the righteous that's going to follow. He says, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountains. Let's go to the last point here. God will comfort the righteous. And he assures the wicked that they will have no peace at all. Verses 14 through 21. And it should be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. And I would understand this to be a preparation of the hearts, that, that, much akin to John the Baptist preaching, to make, make, way, make straight the way for our Lord. Uh, this is actually for the people of the Lord to approach the Lord. There's some spiritual road construction, so to say, that has to take place. Verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, he is transcended, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Do you get the contrast that's there in that verse, in verse number 15? God is high, he is lifted up. Who does he dwell with? The person who is lowly of a contrite spirit. Do you remember a a few weeks ago, we were in a chapter that had the gospel there. It talked about repentance and calling out on God. This is the repentance. Those who are in the presence of God are sinners who are contrite and lowly. Verse 16, God says, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Now, let me tell you what's not going on there. God is not saying, you know, I've just been angry so long, I'm just going to let go of my anger. I'm just through with it. We're just not going to argue anymore. We just won't talk about it. That is not what is going on there. Look at it again. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For, here's a reason, the Spirit would grow faint before me. Now, that is not the Holy Spirit. That's not, no, my Holy Spirit's just worn out. No, it's the Spirit of mankind. If God were to be angry with you forever, you would be destroyed. You would be hopeless. Continuing there, uh, um, I would not contend forever, nor would be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. So the breath of life, uh, it would just, it would, it would totally annihilate you for God to do that. So he said, I will not contend forever, verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. This is talking about Israel. This is talking about sinful, what I take to be believers now. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I would understand this to be a season of sin to which all of us can identify. 
uh, where before we were saved, before we came to Christ, we persisted in some sin. Maybe even as a Christian, you are struggling with sin. So what is the solution to sin? What is the solution to, to this problem that you just go down over and over and over again, this backsliding sin? Look at verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. Do you see who does this work? God the Father. I will heal him. I will lead him. I will restore comfort to him. This is God working in a sinner's life. Creating the fruit of the lips, the fruit of the lips. That sounds like God makes a change in my heart that causes even my words out of my mouth to change and be sanctified. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. There's another I will. God is just simply active in this. And, and here's the thing that I would say to you. If you are struggling with sin, you need to be low of a contrite heart. You need to repent. And, and we have all of our Christian responses to God that we should have. We pray for, for purity. We, we read his word. Um, maybe we even have some kind of provisions, accountabilities, or removing temptations, or, or, or just simply changing our scene, whatever it might be. We make all of these things, but don't forget this at the end of the day. This is the work of God. It's a personal work. He loves you, and he wants you to love him. As we struggle for victory over sin, the ultimate object here is our love of God. He is the most important in, person in the room right now. He is here. He is also with you alone in your office when you're alone with your computer. He is also with you when you are in bed. And God cares. And he wants to be the object of your sanctification. So in all of this, as, as we seek victory over our sins, and many of us are, and many of us are experiencing victory, do not overlook the person of God and the love of God himself. That he is in the room, he is with you, he does care, he is working, and this is his work. So concluded, that really concludes what he's going to say to the righteous, but look at verse number 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now you may know some wicked people who would live a pretty nice life right now. I mean, many of them are a tempest, but you might know some, they're getting away pretty good. Back up with me to the end of verse number 18, where God said he will restore comfort to him and his mourners. Do you see that word mourners? In verse number 18, that throws us back to chapter, or verse number one. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart that he is now at peace. Okay, so we are dealing with not just God bringing peace to our life right now, we're dealing with peace after death. The, 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 God has restored comfort to him and his mourners. The guy is dead. He's in the presence of God. And God is comforting the mourners that are back home, back on this earth. But the wicked, verse 20, but the wicked, they're like a tossing sea. I would understand their eternal inhabitation to be one that is quite tempestuous that is just a tough existence. Jesus described it as no rest day or night. I mean, if you've had a bad week this week, at least you were able to close your eyes for a few hours and go unconscious and, and wake up and be a bit refreshed physically. At some point, I hope, you were able to go to sleep. In hell, there will be no rest. It will be a continual 
tempest, a continual storm. And this is the final word, verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace. How does God do this for the righteous? How does he lead him and heal him? I will just quickly reference one verse from Isaiah 53, just a few chapters earlier, verse number 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds. God does this work in us. And the foundation is the suffering servant. The foundation is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 